And if you would find, please, in your Bible, verse 7 of 1 John 4, and follow as I read from the pen of the Apostle John through the inspiration of the Spirit of God revealing to us the nature of God and our responsibilities to Him. 1 John 4 and verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, a propitiation for our sins, an appeasement of God's wrath because of our sins. Dear friends, verse 11, Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. I believe that this brief passage from the pen of the Apostle John encapsulates what we have considered to this point in our study of the biblical theme of love. So I'd like to use this passage as a point of departure, but I'd like to review uh, what we have considered in the two previous weeks. This will kind of help us reset the rudder in our understanding and remind us of what we've considered. We notice, first of all, divine love and have considered that. Verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It is God's very nature to love. Love flows unimpeded from His being at all times. This means that from eternity past, a perfectly pure, holy, magnificent love flowed between the persons of the Godhead. Infinite, overwhelming, pure, large love that spilled out then in the creation upon the creature. But we have this declaration that God is love. Secondly, we consider the demonstration of divine love. How is God's love evidenced? Verse 9, this is how God showed His love among us. He overlooked everything that we had ever done wrong and sat back and said, I'll get over it, it's okay. Is that what God does? Is that how He demonstrates His love? No, it is He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrificial lamb. That is the demonstration of the love of God. First, God's love is grounded in His holiness, justice, and severity. And it is an error for us to define God's love as simply being an excuse for sin an overlooking of wrongdoing, a gentleness that will not bring itself to judge wrong. No, the love of God is a love that is connected to holiness and justice and severity. It never condones or overlooks sin. Secondly, this love is self-sacrificing. Thirdly, this love is free. It is while we were still sinners, while we were His enemies, Romans 5 
that Jesus died the harshest human suffering conceivable, laying down his life in our behalf. We did not deserve this. God did not need to do this. Jesus freely, without constraint, gave himself away in holy abandon for our greatest good. We'll talk about this, Lord willing, in a few moments, but there are some who would have us to believe that God had to do this. We were so valuable, so inherently valuable, that he had to give his son in our behalf. But we see nothing of this in the text of Scripture. We see only that the justice of God and the love of God met over his head, and that wrath came down upon him, and that freedom from sin was delivered to us. We then defined love in this way. God's love is his native orientation to abundantly and joyfully give of himself for the greatest good of others, apart from any consideration of what they deserve or of the cost to himself. Well, we cannot stand at the foot of the cross and look to the Son dying there in our place, bearing the justice and the wrath of God, and in love giving His life to us. We cannot stand at the foot of that cross and walk away unimpressed and unchanged. If we know the facts of the death of Christ and they do not change us, we have not really perceived the truth. We've not understood. And that leads then to a discussion of human love. We considered in past weeks, and we see here epitomized in verse 11, the ethic of human love. Verse 11, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It follows. In the light of this kind of love, we must love one another. It is moral obligation moral privilege. We cannot match the depth of God's love, yet this love is a communicable attribute. That is, it is a quality we must emulate. Remember Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. What does it say? Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Look at Christ on the cross and live like that. The objects of human love, very obviously, we must love God. Matthew 22:37, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. And secondly, we must love one another, as we see epitomized here in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Let us love one another. Or as Jesus put it in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Where does this love come from? The source of this human love, 1 John 4 and verse 7, is God. This love comes from God. The Greek phrase reads here, love is out of God. It comes out of Him like a fountain. It comes from Him. He is the source of it. He is the one who puts it in our heart. We will talk about the various words that are used for love, Lord willing, in the future, but Vaughn writes, agape love, which we're talking about here, that kind of love, this divine love, is not simply an emotion which rises unbidden in our hearts. It is a principle by which we deliberately live. Love is a disposition of life which has its origin in God's own nature. 
And so remember that prayer of Jesus, that intimate prayer to the Father before he died, John 17. What did he say? Righteous Father, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. So we consider the necessity of love. 1 John 4 and verse 7, Let us love one another, for love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God. There is no vital connection between us and God if love is absent. Verse 8 brings this idea out as well. Whoever does not love does not know God. And verse 12, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. This we have considered in previous days. But knowing that God is love and knowing that we must love as God loved us is one thing. Living a life of love is quite another. If we are spiritually alive, if we are genuinely awed by the love of God, awed by His infinite and holy and sacrificial love into which He has drawn us and placed in our hearts at salvation, if we are really alive to this love, we have to be awed, but we also have to realize that we fall short. Who of us can hear Christ's words in Matthew 22? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Who of us can stand here and say, done, check that off my list, got that under control? Who can hear, love your neighbor as you love yourself and say, done, I've got that accomplished? We know when we hear these words that we fall short. We do not love in the sense that Jesus loved us, laying down His life for us. We all realize that our love for God is weak and our love for others is characteristically unremarkable, if not entirely abysmal at times. Now we could consider this doctrine of love we could consider our responsibility to love one another and then walk away feeling inadequate. But I'd like us to do more than that. I'd like us to spend some time, park the car and sit a while and meditate carefully on this matter of love. We combed the Scriptures last time, numerous passages. I'd like us to stop now and take a look under the hood, so to speak. Let's pull the car into the shop. Let's lift the hood. And for uh, the time that God gives us here, like to look under that engine hood and say, what's wrong here? What's wrong? Why do we not love as God loves us? With what must we come to terms if we're going to live a life of genuine love? To analyze the problem thoroughly, we need to go back to the beginning. And so I invite you back to Genesis and the fall. Genesis chapter 3. We look at this passage in so many different ways. Because it is the origin of every sin that we consider and every difficulty that we face. Although we look at Adam's original state here and the origin of this problem, lacking love, although they had the capacity to sin, Adam and Eve were created without a sin nature. This means that Adam and Eve loved one another with a flawless love. Does that follow? I think that has to be very clear. Adam was patient with Eve. Let me just look at it from Adam's side and we could turn it around and spend a lot of time there. But let's, let's stop and meditate here. Adam was patient with Eve. 
He treated her with gentle kindness and moral integrity. He did not boast or gloat over her weaknesses as a woman. He was filled with the deepest and most noble interest in her. Adam's love for Eve isolated him against being easily offended. He never held a grudge. Nor did Adam ever begrudge his wife any blessing. Rather, he rejoiced with her in all that God bestowed upon her. He treated her at all times, in all ways, with deep respect and dignity. He did not doubt or second-guess his wife. He always gave her the benefit of the doubt. Adam worked for his wife. He communicated ably with his wife. And he abandoned himself to all of her best interests. We can deduce this from what we learn about love and knowing that Adam and Eve were sinless at this time. God's love for the triune God spilled out onto Adam and Eve and drew this first couple in so that this same kind of love flowed freely and purely and completely between Adam and Eve. The only direct statement that we have in this early account of this relationship is found in verses 23 and 25 of the second chapter. Chapter 2, verse 23. The man said, as God brings Adam to him, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. What we see here on Adam's part is self-awareness. Her bones match my bones. She came from me. This is one who corresponds to me. He understands who he is and how he differs with the animals, and he sees this woman and sees a correspondence. There is a self-awareness on Adam's part. But it's an awareness here that puts in poetic form this praise to his wife from God's hand. We then notice in verse 25 that the man and the wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Their literal nakedness reflected a relational nakedness. That is, they could see one another's body and know that it corresponded to their own in a mysterious and beautiful way but they had no sense of debilitating self-awareness in this relationship. And ask yourself, how is it possible to be aware of yourself in one sense and yet not be ashamed of your own nakedness in the presence of another? There's only one way to do that. And that is to be so oriented outward that you do not even consider your own nakedness. You have your concentration fixed on someone outside of yourself. In a literal sense, this is a reality married couples experience when they enjoy intimacy in a godly manner, nakedness without self-consciousness. And in a figurative sense, this is a reality every believer can enjoy whenever he or she abandons self for the love of others, a joyful vulnerability without debilitating self-consciousness. If I'm ringing any bells here, this is important stuff. That's something that I would like to characterize my life, and I know that God wants to characterize my life by this. A joyful vulnerability without debilitating self-consciousness. Something I know about you, because I know about my own heart, you struggle with that. I struggle with that. A joyful vulnerability without debilitating self-consciousness. This was a beautiful world. A time when all of mankind loved God with all of their heart and their neighbor as themselves. 
That's the original state. We move then to the fall, chapter 3 and verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. To this point, God was the one who determined what was right and what was wrong for Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve chose to place an evil confidence in their own judgment. In that horrible moment, as Eve eyed the forbidden fruit hanging from the tree, and in that evil moment, as Adam eyed the forbidden fruit extended toward him in the hand of his wife, the first couple turned inward and relied upon self. They acted in self-centered, love-abandoning pride. A second thing happened. We have here a new self-dependence. In verse 7, we have a new self-awareness. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Their eyes were opened. There's a new self-awareness. Adam and Eve were immediately overwhelmed with this new debilitating sense of self-awareness. The nakedness to which they had been blissfully self-forgetful now became painfully obvious and they hid their bodies. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Now, this is a man who could see himself and know that his wife corresponded to him, but this is a man now who has a new awareness of himself. And God connects the dotted line to sin. You've sinned, haven't you? With this self-awareness, I know that you have sinned. Now, obviously, God knew what had happened, but he's working Adam through this. I know that it's sin. What does the man say? How does he respond with this new self-consciousness, this new sense of his nakedness? How does he respond? Verse 12, the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. This is the same man who had been so oriented toward his wife, so consumed with her good, so filled with love for her that he did not even recognize his own nakedness. And now he points the finger in her face and says, she did it. Do you like Adam here? It's not very lovely, is it? You just want to go and hit him over the head with an apple or something. No, this isn't pretty. This is ugly. Adam has become small. He's become self-serving. He's turned inward. His large and loving soul has been shriveled into something pathetic. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says that genuine love is not self-seeking. That's exactly what Adam is here. He's self-seeking. 1 John 3.16 says that genuine love lays down its life for the beloved Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 33, let each of you love his wife as himself. That is exactly what Adam does not do here. 
For the first time in his life, Adam points his finger at Eve and he does exactly the opposite of what the love of Jesus constrained him to do that night in Gethsemane and that day on Calvary. Jesus saw your sin with all its ugliness and in response, Jesus stood in your place and mine and bore the full vent of God's just wrath against our sin. That's exactly what Adam does not do here. He does not stand forward and say, We have sinned, and I will pay the penalty of my wife's sin. He points the finger in her face and says she did it. Jesus didn't point such an accusatory finger. He knew how to condemn and rebuke sin, certainly, but in the ultimate act of his life, Jesus did not condemn. He took your punishment, and he paid the penalty in full. What happened to Adam? What happened here? I don't know, and other theologians quote from the same source, I don't know that anybody knows necessarily of a more classic statement to what happened than we find in Jonathan Edwards' Charity and Its Fruit. A chapter entitled, The Spirit of Charity, the Opposite of a Selfish Spirit, says this. Think about these are These are amazing words written hundreds of years ago to which people continue to return. Immediately upon the fall... The mind of man shrank from its primitive greatness and expandedness to an exceeding smallness and contractedness. Before the fall, his soul was under the government of that noble principle of divine love whereby it was enlarged to the comprehension of all his fellow creatures and their welfare. And thenceforward, he himself shrank, as it were, into a little space circumscribed and closely shut up within itself to the exclusion of all things else. Sin, like some powerful astringent, a shrinking agent, contracted his soul to the very small dimensions of selfishness. Self-love became absolute master of his soul, and the more noble and spiritual principles of his being took wings and flew away. I think if we really got a sense of that, we'd all probably be in tears. How small we have come and how much we have lost when we turn to the self. And that problem continues not only in the life of Adam, but now has passed on in his nature to us. By nature, we are born separated from humble faith dependence and we are bent towards self-dependence. We are born with a self-centered orientation. Do you catch those two concepts? This is what Adam did. Self-dependence in pride, choosing his own way. Self-centeredness, defending his own turf lovelessly. This is what we are stuck in. As human beings, we're born with a self-centered orientation. At every turn, self trumps genuine love. And I'd like us to turn then to Romans chapter 1 and the classic statement. We've gone to the origin of sin. We turn now to the classic New Testament description of the evil of sin in the life of fallen humanity. Romans chapter 1 and verse 29 And what I'd like to do is pick through some of these ideas. What has sin done to us? What does it produce in us? And we will find as we go through this list that love is at the heart of all of it. There's a couple of phrases that I will 
bypass for sake of time. I think you could show that a lack of love is at the heart of it, but it would take a lot more time and reasoning. So let me go to just the obvious ones. I'll skip just a couple in here, but let's look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And I'll pick up here, they are full of envy. Let's put this idea of love against the sin of envy. Selfless love rejoices in the blessing of others. Selfish pride seethes with bitter envy that I do not enjoy the same blessing as another. Murder. Selfless love does good to its enemies and wishes reconciliation with them. Selfish pride hates its enemies and wishes them dead. Strife. Selfless love seeks peace. Selfish pride loves to pick fights. Deceit. Selfless love tells the truth and works tirelessly behind the scenes for the good of others. Selfish pride lies and works treacherously behind the scenes to harm and manipulate others for selfish advantage. Malice. Selfless love is kind and caring toward others. Selfish pride is mean-spirited and puts the worst construction on things. That is the lexicon's definition of malice, the Greek lexicon, to put the worst construction on things. Gossips and slanderers, selfless love works behind backs to protect the reputation of others. Selfish pride works behind backs to tear others down. Insolence, selfless love is tender and kind. Selfish pride is cocky and cruel. Arrogant and boastful. Selfless love is humble and boasts of others. Selfish pride exalts and promotes self. These are individuals who invent, we are individuals who invent evil. Selfless love labors to do right and thus proves a continual blessing to others. Selfish pride seeks to do wrong and that is often at the expense of others. They are disobedient to parents. Selfless love is submissive and respectful to those in authority. Selfish pride stiffens its neck and resists authority. They are faithless. The Greek word has the idea of covenant breaking. Selfless love keeps its word and is tenaciously loyal no matter the personal cost. Selfish pride is quick to break its promises and to betray a friend in order to gain self-advantage. They are heartless. The Greek word means without natural tenderness, often used in the context of a parent who does not love their children. Selfless love is thus tender-hearted and protects its own. Selfish pride runs roughshod over the interests of others in the interest of self. They are ruthless, verse 31. The Greek word means without pity. Selfless love is merciful. It specializes in taking pity upon those who are down. Selfish pride is insensitive. It specializes in kicking those who are down. Now let's connect back to Adam. In the fall, what did Adam evidence? First of all, a new self-dependence. Self was elevated as all-important, and we could put it under the heading of pride. 
Secondly, there was a new self-awareness. Self became his dominating interest at the expense of others. He was self-centered and proud. In our Adamic nature, we are then hardwired to the very same orientation. We think too highly of ourselves by nature. We think too much about ourselves by nature. We think too hard about ourselves by nature. We conceive life with self at the center and armed with self-centered pride. We are inherently dull to the interests of others and overly concerned about our own. The core of the problem is this great exchange. In the place of God at the center of Adam's affections and attention, we have placed self. It's an idolatrous transfer. And if we really get it, again, we should, at least in our mind's eye, be beating our breasts with the publican in Jesus' famous parable and plead, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But here's where real hope comes in. This is where the hope of the gospel addresses us in our wickedness and our evilness. If we look at Adam pointing his finger in Eve's face, we have to say he's not a lovely man there. And if we genuinely see ourselves, if we can get free of the mist of self-centered pride long enough to look at who we really are, we say, God, deliver me from such a person. We want the redemption of God. But there's a huge question here. As we think on the redemption from this problem, the big question here is, what is the gospel? What is salvation? There is a commonly held gospel in our context, perhaps more than any other context on earth, but in our context, there is a false gospel that enters in here and in fact keeps us connected to our depravity. Whatever you want to call that gospel, I call it the self-esteem gospel. But our ultimate malady, the statement goes, is that we have low self-esteem. Our problem is that we fail to think highly of ourselves and to feel good about ourselves and to love ourselves. And lacking that self-love, we are then incapable of loving God and loving others. And so we need to be redeemed from this lack of self-love and liberated to pour out the love that we have for ourselves upon others. And we should understand then at the heart of all of this that God thought we were so valuable that He sent His one and only Son to bear our sin. And I always say subliminally, what little there is of it. And to give us salvation. How about how, how can we talk about our inherent self-worth all day long and then talk about Jesus actually having to die for us? That's the message that is prevalent. It's prevalent in the literature of our evangelical world. It is prevalent in many of the churches of our evangelical world. And in a twisted, diabolical way, this false gospel actively promotes self-centeredness and pride. It encourages us to do exactly what Adam did. It encourages us to look inward and to find sufficiency in the self, in a word, to feel pretty good about us. Under the guidance of this gospel, self is elevated, it is coddled, it is encouraged. And when self is permitted to rule the heart, the inevitable result of this idolatry is pride and the shrinking of God. I quote from, I 
beg and borrow in some of this from David Wells, who finds a quotation from Karl Barth. Not a fire-breathing fundamentalist by any stretch of the imagination, but he drills this one. This is the result. Thinking of ourselves what can only be thought of God, we are then unable to think of Him more highly than we think of ourselves. Being to ourselves what God ought to be to us, He is no more to us than we are to ourselves. The self-esteem gospel strokes and coddles and feeds the very monster we need to crush. It sets up on the throne self, and it displaces God, and so God becomes what we conceive ourselves to be. And I would suggest to you that that is not the true gospel. I would suggest that what we have read in these passages over these past three weeks is the biblical gospel because it's drawn from direct statements of Scripture. It's what God is saying to us. What did He say? 1 John 4 and verse 10. What is the genuine gospel that saves us from self and pride and selfishness? 1 John 4 and verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And how did He love us? He sent His Son as a propitiation for our sins. As the one who satisfied the wrath of God against all of this wickedness in our heart. This evil, malice, gossip, slander, arrogance, cockiness, boastfulness, disobedience to parents, faithfulness, heartlessness, deceit and strife and murder and envy. He has delivered us from that by bringing all of our sin upon the head of His Son and offering His Son in sacrifice to free us from sin. Not because we were so inherently worthy, but because we were so desperately lost. This is the love of God for us. And this is the love that He brings us into so that we can love others with the same type of love. Jesus did not come to confirm our inherent worth. He came to save us from our sin. Jesus did not come to promote our pride and self-centeredness. He came to crush them and to rescue us from our Adamic nature. How did Jesus put it? You're really good people. If you just take one step further and follow me, I'll take you to heaven. No, Jesus said, if any man will follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. If we would paraphrase that to fit it with the context of love, Jesus says, let him love me to the utter abandonment of self-interest. To follow Christ is to take self off of that center stage and to see God enthroned where God belongs, at the core of our interests, at the core of our thoughts, so that the love of God flows within our heart and is not impeded by self. Jesus came to rescue us from the small world to which selfish pride confines us by nature and to pour out His broad and deep and high love into our hearts. Romans 5.5 5. He did this through no merit of our own so that we will participate in the divine nature which lays down self-interest on the altar of others' greatest good. 
So if you know Christ as your Savior today, I can say on the authority of Scripture that you died with Christ to self-centeredness and pride. Count yourself dead then and resist the devil and put to death the deeds of the flesh. Consider, what is truly the motivating factor in your life? What is the prime mover? Is it self or is it God? If it is God, there will be a love in your life toward others, a humility toward God, and a willingness to lay yourself out on the line in the best interests of others. When we know the love of God, self is characteristically invested in others, and we pour out our lives for the greatest good of others, apart from any consideration of what they deserve or of the cost to us personally. Armed with biblical love, we can live so as to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility of mind to consider others better than ourselves. And the essence of that, of course, is Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 2, who took on the form of a servant and gave himself in your place and mine, leaving behind this new command, John 13, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we are thankful for this reminder of your word. And I think that I speak for the church as I come into your presence with their prayers ascending to your throne when I say that we sense in the light of your presence our smallness, our vileness, our failure to honor this moral call to love with all of our heart. And yet, God, there is something here that wells up within us that no self-esteem gospel can produce, and that is a sense of the beauty of your grace and your mercy. We thank you, God, for rescuing us from self-centered pride and for providing for us the power and the strength and the capacity to love you with all of our heart and our neighbors, ourself. Oh God, I pray that your love would be poured out in our hearts as a church, as individual believers. We're just beginning to look under this hood and we see the very heart and the root of the cause is selfish pride, a self-centeredness. Lord, as we continue forward, as you grant us life, may we continue to be able to pick apart this idea of love and to know how it now practically applies in our daily walk. We have so much to learn. I pray that we would be mindful, Lord, that the ultimate issue is whether we will live a life in which you are God and which we respond to you every day as if you really were the Lord of our lives. Help us to set self aside to be able to work through the fog of the false gospel that's preached everywhere in our world. 
to know that you are all in all. Help us, God, to this end, I pray. Change us and move us. If there is one among us that does not know your love in a personal way, not come to understand that your death on the cross was in their interest, I pray that you'll draw that one to saving faith, even this day, for this is the day of salvation. We pray to this end, Lord, and ask now that as we sing to encourage each other in song, that we will love one another as we should.